This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu slash hc. Welcome to Lunch and Learn. I'm Gleaves Whitney, your host. During our quarantine, we may not be able to journey beyond our homes, but that should not stop us from journeying beyond our minds. Have you ever been pursuing your dream and then had to take an unwanted detour? Well, today's guest, Riley Pearl, knows that feeling. Riley is a senior at Grand Valley State University and a fellow candidate in the Hauenstein Center's Cook Leadership Academy. A year ago, January 10th, Riley's world was rocked. She was pursuing studies in finance and psychology, involved in her sorority, mentoring in the Honors College, when she went to her doctor and learned something would change her life. My conversation with Riley will go about 30 minutes, followed by questions from you, our viewers. Our goal is not to go five minutes, but please feel free to begin sending your questions as they come up, using the toolbar to do so. Riley, thank you for joining me. Yeah, of course. Leaves. I'm really happy to this experience and, and get to see you guys. Um, I, I know a lot of people probably don't know this, but when we were at school, um, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Leaves. We would do coffee and just talk. And so this is pretty, pretty similar to what we've already done, which is really nice to have the opportunity to do it now virtually. That's right, Riley. We've done this rodeo lots of times, haven't we? Yes, yeah, we have. We always schedule, what, 30 minutes? It's a, you know, when it's just me and you, we need a little bit more than 30 minutes, so. That, that's absolutely right. It's great to see you again, by the way. Well, Riley, please tell us what you were doing the morning your life changed. Yeah, so um, like Cleve said, it was January 10th of last year, so I was a second semester junior. Um, my birthday had just been the fifth, so we were back at school for about a week, um, and it was a Friday, and you know, obviously I'd just been home for winter break for like a month and I, my mom is like, like, what are you doing? What are you doing now? Where are you? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm at Kleiner, I'm getting food or I'm at Kirkoff meeting with somebody. And I had just left a meeting um, with a Greek life counselor to talk about my sorority and to talk about leadership. And my mom calls me, she's like, hey, are you home? I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm on my way home. Like, why do you, why do you keep calling me? Like, it's not, a, she's like, oh no, just checking, just checking. So I hang up and I'm in my room and I hear this knocking at the door and I'm like, okay. And I open the door and it's my mom. And I'm like, okay, I've just talked to you six times. Like, what are you doing? Like, who died? Like, what's going on? And so she comes in and she's like, look, you know, you went in for this checkup over winter break and, you know, they did this biopsy, not thinking that it was anything. And you haven't been answering your phone. Your voicemail is full. You're not answering anybody's call. And, um, you know, we, we really need to talk to you. And so she had driven the two hours from the east side to come up and to tell me that um, the doctors were thinking that there was like a small mass. They thought it was, they knew for sure after biopsy that it was cancerous and that it was some form of melanoma, but that was really all we knew. And that was all my mom knew because, you know, being just recently turned 21, you know, that's an adult in the medical world. and they wouldn't talk to her. They didn't have any of the right forms. So for 24 hours, she pretty much just sat with this information before she was able to kind of drive up to Grand Valley, put the phone in my hand and say, call these six numbers. We have to make appointments. 
you know, and that's a really intense feeling for a Friday, five days into the school year. And to also just not have any of that information. It wasn't like we had a full diagnosis. It was just, okay, we have these five phone numbers that we have to call and they're going to tell us what the next step was. And for them, the next step was, okay, you have an appointment in two weeks. And that felt like we had an appointment in five years, you know, to wait that 14 days. Oh, and I imagine your anxiety level just went through the roof during that two weeks. Yeah, and it, I mean, it was really stressful. I think it was even more difficult because you can't really tell people or express to people what's going on because, you know, we didn't have any information. So it was pretty much my mom and my boyfriend who knew. And for me, even just telling him was like as much as I could do. Like as soon as I did that, I was like, okay, I'm off the hook, right? Like everybody knows who needs to know. So even uh, my best friend didn't know for a few weeks, it was like my roommate, my boyfriend and my mom. Those were like the three people who knew why I was acting crazy and, and stressed and anxious. Um, and so it, it took a really long time because, you know, what do you tell people when you don't know anything? You don't want to have a heightened sense of fear. And for me, I was pretty naive. Um, you know, we don't have any history of cancer in my family. I've never really experienced somebody having cancer on any personal level. And so, you know, in my head, not really having the information, it was like, oh, you know, they say it's one surgery. Okay, so it's one surgery and we're done. It's not going to be a big deal. Nobody has to know. You know, it, it won't have to really be anything. So we went in for that first appointment and still really weren't given staging, just that it was more than likely they thought maybe there was a 10% chance that it could be really advanced. And, you know, for now, we were just going to do the one surgery. They were going to go in and cut about a four or five inch incision on my chest, take out what they presumed to be, you know, a small mass. and you know, that would be it. There really wouldn't be any other treatment. And at this point, we were only really working with the surgeons. So I didn't really have an oncologist on my team yet. It was just kind of, okay, here's the surgeon that you're assigned to. Um, and I was still in the children's hospital, actually, at the time, because at University of Michigan Hospitals, you can be under a children's hospital care until 22. So I actually just aged out of that um, in, the, in January. So we went in for the first surgery actually on, on Valentine's Day. So that was my, my Valentine's Day oh. date with the surgeon. Um, went in and, you know, they said, okay, we're going to do this. And we're also going to pull two lymph nodes out of the left arm just to check them. We don't think that there's going to be any problem. You know, she won't even know that it's not a big thing. Um, and at the time, I didn't even know what a lymphatic system was. So I was like, okay, whatever, take them. And I didn't really know this at the time, but after the surgery, they had gone out to talk to my mom and the surgeon had said, um, they don't look good. They don't, they don't look right. He said that they were blackened or dark and, you know, I don't come from a medical family. So my mom says, okay, so what are they supposed to look like? And he said, clear. So my mom knew I would even before me that that probably wasn't going to come back as a good biopsy. And, but the surgeon was about it, was like, yeah, like I said, a 10% chance, you know, and I was actually, was pretty okay after about a week at home, maybe a little less. So I went back up to school without the results. And I was like getting ready for just like out of nowhere and 
was like, oh yeah, we need you to come into the office. And I was like, the office? Like, you know, I'm two hours away. I'm, I'm busy. Like I have class and put 10 minutes, like, can we talk later? And he's like, no, we, we need to talk now. So that is, again, like kind of where me being naive plays into it, of just not understanding, I think, the seriousness of it all and being at school and just trying to live out like a normal life in the middle of the chaos. And so, you know, he said, um, they're both they're both cancerous and we need you to come back in for a second surgery um, next week. And um, selfishly at the time, I was like, uh, next week's our spring break and I'm, I'm going to London. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I have plans. Like I, I can't do that. Um, oh. So that was even a secondary fight, but they did let me go, um, which was a really, really cool opportunity. And, you know, they said, if, if you think it's best for morale that, you know, to my mom, if your daughter goes, you know, let her go, let her go to London. And then, you know, the day she gets back or so we'll, we'll do the surgery. So I went to London and then the week I got back, we did a second surgery where they pulled I want to say like 26 or so lymph nodes out of my left arm. Mm. So I, I think the doctor said about a small fist or so, like about a baseball size, um, which is, which is a lot to kind of just have yanked from your body. So that was a decently long recovery as well. Oh, Riley. And how long were you out of school at that point? Yeah. So um, pretty, early on in the process, even kind of during surgery one and for sure prepping for surgery two, um, the question obviously was school, my junior year. And at this point I was able to make it almost, it was basically midterms, right? So I've already done the work for half the semester. Um, and when we talked to my Grand Valley counselors, they were like, okay, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we can have you medical withdrawal and give you a refund. And as soon as I was at the office, I was like, no, that's actually not why I'm here. I'm here because I want resources on how to stay in school. And they were, they were all kind of shocked. They're like, you want to do what? Like, and I was like, no, I already did half the work. Just give me the other half and I'll do it from home, which is, I mean, pretty funny because that's basically what we're all doing now. Um, but at the time it was about five weeks, not consecutive, but by the end of finals, it was about five full missed weeks of classes. Um, and I, I think, I think if the tracking I did was right, um, leading up to finals, I was in the library for like 88 hours because nothing was taken off the syllabus and that's not really what I wanted. I just needed extended deadlines. So I still had all those papers to write and all those, you know, pages to finish and finance calculations. So it was more just, it kind of all piled up until the end and, you know, it all, all got done. Um, but that was kind of like a post-surgery recovery. And then it was, I think, a week after finals, we had kind of timed it. Um, and then I started treatment in May. So we did a form of immunotherapy um, just because it was so widespread into the lymphatic system. And scans had showed, okay, it's not in the brain. It's not on any of the organs. But you know, for something that I had no symptoms, I had no signs, it was just kind of a fluke test that it showed up in for it to be so advanced and to spread so quickly. Um, they determined it a um, stage three advanced melanoma. And, and even, you know, being somebody who hadn't dealt with cancer before, I for sure hadn't dealt with skin cancer. And I think that there's a certain level of 
you know, oh, skin cancer is not a big deal or, oh, it doesn't happen to young people or, you know, people, you know, who don't spend super um, amounts of time in the sun, which was all of me. I was very, um, I wouldn't say a super rare case, but definitely not your run of the mill um, retiree at that melanoma clinic. And so that's why we chose to do the immunotherapy route, um, you know, using pills. And we did that. Um, there was a couple different choices we could have done more of an IV, but because I was such a young patient, they were just nervous that if we did the hardest type of treatment early, that my body would then develop a way to kind of go around it later in life. And we wouldn't be able to ever bring that back. Um, because melanoma is a little bit different. Breast cancer, once you kind of hit that five-year, 10-year mark, they say, oh, your chances decrease significantly that it will ever come back. Um, and the issue with melanoma is that there's never going to be a five-year, a 10-year mark. I will go back for scans once a year for the rest of my life. And right now they're every six months. So that's probably another five years of, you know, that, that scansiety every about six months. So what were you feeling during all of this? I mean, to, once you, you know, accepted the fact, or, or how long did it take you to really accept the fact that you yeah. had to become a cancer survivor? And what were you feeling through all of this? Um, I would say that it definitely that first semester, I probably didn't have the best coping mechanisms. I would say that probably school was my coping mechanism, just to have my mind on something and to have something to do that I had control over. I don't think I fully accepted it until well into the summer or really like felt the way I should have been feeling in January, you know, in May. Once it was all kind of over and I had no school, no, you know, busy things to be doing and it was just kind of me, um, I think that's a lot of when it set in, kind of delayed. Um, definitely those like kind of seven stages of grief, I was in denial for a really long time because really what I was feeling was grief for the old life that I had and just realizing kind of everything that, you know, cancer itself had, had taken from me. I think my mom's like favorite quote of the whole thing is just, I'm busy. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't have time to, you know, drive two hours to go to the doctors and I don't, this is inconvenient. You know, and, and who really says that about their own health? But at 21 years old, when you're completely healthy and your health is not, you know, top priority, number one thing that you're always thinking about, that was really difficult for me. And especially um, getting, I remember the first day of treatment, they printed out this long list of appointments. And that was a shell shock for them to say, okay, for the next six months, every Wednesday at 10 a.m., you're going to be in this clinic. And for me to say, that doesn't fit in my schedule. On Wednesdays, I'm at my internship. In the fall, on Wednesdays, I'll be up at school. Like, Wednesdays don't work for me. Um, and obviously, for the hospital to look at you and say, it's, it's not up to you. It's not about what works for your schedule. This is, you know, you're operating completely out of control. You don't get a say. Um, and, I, and I will say that I did end up getting a say. And I came in on Fridays. But, but separately... Um, it was definitely a wake-up call for them to tell me, look, your number one priority is you're a patient before you're a student, before you're a friend, a sister, you know, a girlfriend, any of these things, you're a patient. And once, you know, your role of being a patient is fulfilled, then you can, you can do whatever else is, is left. And I would say the best and worst advice they kind of gave me in the entire thing was, you know, 
you need to go on and, and live your normal life. You know, this isn't your whole life. This is just kind of what's going on to keep the rest of your life going. So don't, you know, just leave it all behind. But, you know, for most of the patients in the clinic, you know, they're retired. So that advice to them is, you know, still fairly relaxing, I would say. And for them to say it to me, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going back to school. I'm, you know, going to be out of my house 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. And, you know, that's, that's not really sustainable when you're, when you're going through treatment. And, and I learned that really quick. I would hit a wall, you know, I mean, it depended every day. It could be at 1 p.m., it could be at 8 p.m., or it could be just one missed dose of medication, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm in pain calling my mom in the middle of a parking lot at 4 p.m. saying, oh my God, what do I do? Like, um, So that part of it was definitely hard to control and, and hard to manage um, because you're just, so much of your life is just kind of like taken from you. Your family... I get the sense really rallied. You talk about your mom being right there. What what was happening with your family as you were going through this, Riley? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's funny because I'm I'm the middle child, and so I I always joke that I was never like the problem child. Like I was always very self sufficient. Nobody had to worry about Riley, like whatever. And you know, my parents were, you know, talking to my older sister, my younger sister all the time. I would say the biggest change was that everyone was calling me all day, you know, like every hour on the hour, it was my dad, my mom, my boyfriend, somebody was just be like, Hey, how's it going? You know, everything's fine. Um, and that was a really different feeling for me to feel like, I mean, it was a really, really great sense of support, but it was a little overwhelming because it was, I didn't really know where to ask for help or how to ask for help because I hadn't really, um, ever had to, to, to do that before. So that was really hard for me in the beginning because I didn't really want anybody's help or then I would, you know, feel like a burden if I was in pain and I didn't want to have to reach out to people and explain, you know, what I was going through or why I couldn't really fulfill um, that commitment. I think it was just a, such a shift of identity, um, which is, I think, a huge theme of the last year of looking back at, you know, the fall of 2018, which now you know, feels like ages ago, but looking at really what I thought of myself, which was obviously very dependent and, um, you know, a leader and very active in, in my community. And then having, you know, cancer strip my independence and being able to have it kind of take all of these things where I was like, I want it back, <laughs> give it back. I want to, you know, trade, but, you know, you can't for a lot of those things. You know, when I first listened to you describe this experience, one of the things, well, there are many things that impressed me about you, Riley, and one of the things that that you talked about in the way you coped was the way you looked at energy, personal energy. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was actually um, first when I was visiting a counselor over the summer during treatment. Um, one of the main side effects of treatment was fatigue and, and swelling and a couple of other things that really left me a lot more inactive than I used to be. And that was a big turning point for me um, because she was able to describe something that a lot of other chronically ill people use in their daily life, which is called the spoon theory. And I, I can't really accurately describe the spoon theory quickly. And so if anybody on the webinar has time and you want to Google um, 
the spoon theory, it'll, it'll pop up pretty quickly, but it's kind of this idea that when you're not ill, you're completely healthy, that you have unlimited, unlimitless spoons or unlimitless energy. So you wake up every morning and you don't have to think about, you know, oh, I have to, you know, get dressed and shower and how much energy is that going to take away from me? Because, you know, you can make it through the end of the day. And so when you're going through treatment, you don't have unlimited anything. You're very limited um, because of the medication. And so it was kind of this daily thing of, you know, before when I was going to school off treatment, completely healthy, I could schedule my days, leave house at 8 a.m. and come back to house at 10 p.m. and do it over and over and over again and not, you know, not have to say no or to decline plans or anything like that. And so I had to be very aware if I was going to continue um, my education or work or anything, you know, how much energy does that take me to complete that task or to attend that lecture or to, you know, go to coffee with Gleaves? What do I need to plan my day around? And it was interesting because I think in college, we're all taught the idea, okay, just manage your time. As long as you have time management skills, you're fine. You'll graduate in four years, you know, you'll manage your classes and, and to do all this. But had I been just managing my time, I would still be on that schedule. And like I said, at 4 p.m., I would hit that just absolute wall of pain or exhaustion and not be able to go on, and then also not be able to really get the experiences educationally or socially that I wanted out of college. Um, so for me, that was a big turning point of deciding what I was gonna do in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, because if I kind of went away from that original plan, well, then maybe that thing in the evening can't be done today or tomorrow, so. Looking back on all of this, Riley, what's the biggest way all of this changed you? I think it still is is changing me even now. I think for sure um, identity. I think realizing that so much of what I was putting my identity in before were um, like accomplishments, accomplishments or tasks or things that were not even more materialistic, but more based on um, where I was putting my time, I guess. And so realizing that even if I'm not, you know, putting 12 hours a day into this or that, that I could still be accomplished and be whole. And obviously adding um, cancer survivor to your identity is not an easy thing. And, and for me, I would say that that was almost the hardest part was trying to identify as a patient and identify as somebody going through cancer treatment. Um, I never lost my hair based on the treatment that we did. And so if you're going through the stereotypes of, of what somebody going through cancer looks like, how do you look at yourself in the mirror every day and be like, oh yeah, I'm not healthy when you look healthy on the outside. And for me, that was really difficult because that's how I look to everyone else too. So how do you then look healthy and be able to go into Meijer and use, you know, I always use this example of like use the scooter because you're too exhausted to walk. I think that was a huge battle of like going to the grocery store was really, really difficult. Um, that had been, you know, a fight a couple of times that led to tears of like, oh my God, I can't even imagine 
walking around that whole store right now that to me like hurt my brain um and so just looking at like how you identify yourself and how you spend your time doesn't have to be all the way and i think even um you know being a christian through all of this i remember me and gleaves had this conversation of like how do you um have good faith and be a good christian for other people when your first words aren't, oh, well, yeah, God's great. You know, God's doing great things in my life right now. And he, and he was, and I was getting better and it was going in the right direction. But there were days where somebody would say that to me and I was like, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, and that's, that's difficult to then identify yourself in that way and be able to put a lot of trust and a lot of faith in that direction, you know, is hard when you're, when you're going through something like that. Well, Riley, it's, it's an amazing story. It's an inspirational story, the way you've coped, and, and you're going to graduate on time, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I am going to graduate on time. Um, obviously, in the, the midst of all this chaos, it is pretty crazy. But um, yeah, just about 10 credits left to go this semester and finishing it off the next couple of weeks, and then it'll it'll be done, which is, which is crazy. But it, I mean, it really is a gift. I know that everyone would do it would do it differently and maybe if i had the chance to go back maybe i would have coped differently but being able to like get to really graduate and just say that that was not something that my education wasn't taken away from me through this whole process and that was really my own kind of stubbornness i would say that i really wanted to continue and not do half a semester's worth of work and then have it be kind of thrown out the window um and Grand Valley, you know, staff, faculty, professors, everyone was so great to work with that it was almost would have been the wrong decision to, to turn away and to walk away. Um, and so it really is an amazing feeling to be able to say in, in four weeks, it'll, it'll all be done. And it is sad. I think, especially, I think a lot of 2020 seniors right now are wishing we did have another semester, another, you know, year, but, um, Either way, I mean, it doesn't take away the accomplishment of, of finishing, for sure. Well, that's right. And, and also, you did what so many seniors have to do. You went out and got a job. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And, I, and I'm really blessed to have, to have job security in a time like right now. Um, I will be starting with Keyence, hopefully June 28th. Um, if not, at some point this summer, we'll be going to Chicago for training and I will become a technical sales engineer for their Detroit branch. So that's going to be a really, really cool opportunity. Um, and I was able to fly out an interview with them in October, which was a really crazy experience because I pretty much ended treatment at the end of September. October 1st, told my mom, hey, I think I might go to the career fair. And she's like, hey, no problem. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. And I was like, oh, no, I know. I think I'm just going to go. And I think 16 days later is when I got my offer from Keyence. It was um, kind of a whirlwind. And I was able to interview with a lot of different companies, um, Ford and FCA, and, and have other opportunities and other decisions, which was also really cool to you know, kind of see the value of everything that I was working toward kind of come to fruition, to have offers after school and to really be able to say, yep, like I'm moving full speed ahead. This is not slowing me down in, in the slightest. So that's going to be a really cool opportunity. I'm really, really excited to start 
Um, I had the opportunity to work from home for them this last semester and get to know everybody a little bit too. So that was really cool as well. Well, as a fellow candidate in the Cook Leadership Academy at the Hauenstein Center, you're one of about 65, 70 students in the program. And you really show the kind of leadership, the, the internal strength that's necessary to be a good leader. And I think you've cultivated it so much, so brilliantly through this period, this, this last 15 or 16 months. Our, all of us are in such admiration of what you've done. And you know, Riley, we've got a lot of questions coming in. So while we still have a little bit of time, let me turn now to some of the questions. And here, here's a question. The first question we got was, what made you first go in to the doctors for a, a checkup concerning the mass? Um, <laughs> I like to joke and say it was vanity because I went to my dermatologist for acne, actually. So just over Christmas break, um, just had some complaints of, of acne and wanted to go on like a different type of medication. So kind of, like I said, just like a fluke of my dermatologist just doing kind of like a routine checkup. And here's somebody who wants to know, why, why did you push to continue schooling rather than focusing on getting better and, and, and getting rid of that cancer first? I think it was um, a feeling, a little bit of a feeling of control, but also normalcy. I think as soon as you kind of enter the realm of cancer, the notion of normal kind of goes out the door. And so for me, I felt like so much of my life was changing at once that at least if I could go to school and I could, you know, sit in a lecture for an hour or to see my friends for a little bit of that day, I could kind of not forget about it, but just continue on, you know, doing things as normally as I could, because there were a lot of times when it was just a waiting game, you know, being home with my mom, January 10th till, you know, January 20 something, when we went in for that appointment, I mean, we probably just would have been sitting at the couch staring at each other. We didn't, we didn't have any information. And, and same with kind of those rest periods um, between recovery and the next surgery and stuff like that. I really just, it was, it was overwhelming to, to be 21 and to not have anybody else around me to look at, well, how did they do it? How did they cope? Um, I kind of was just making my own survival guide as I went. We have another question that's coming in. Uh, this person asks, how did the cancer change your relationships outside of your family? You know, that really varies um, person to person. I think, I don't even know if I mentioned this in the very beginning, but actually in the fall of 2018, first semester of junior year, I was elected um, my sorority's president. So I actually continued um, presidency for the entire year of um, 2020. Wow. For 2019, so I just finished um, my term in December, and I would say um, my best friend was actually my vice president, and she was the person who just, I mean, the steadiest source of all of this, and um, it, it's really kind of crazy because, like I said, these are other healthy 21-year-olds around me. They're going out, going to the bars. They're not really um, concerned with health in the same way that I was. And so it definitely changed a lot of my friendships, just not being able to be quite as social. And a lot of people, um, they just don't get it. I think the conversation I had with somebody was, you know, when you first turn 16 and you get your car, you're like, oh, I'm 
untouchable. You know, I could drive anywhere, I could do anything. And then that first time you hit even a garbage can or you hit another car, you get in a car accident, you kind of realize like, oh my gosh, my actions kind of like affect other people. And so being sick in this way or even probably experiencing a family member um, really changes your perspective of compassion for what other people are going through. And they're, you know, fortunately for those students, you know, they haven't really experienced anything like that. So they're kind of walking around campus in this bubble and, you know, you can't pop their bubble until they have that similar life experience. And so for me, um, it, it did change a lot of my friendships, but it really showed me kind of who was going to be there for me and be as patient as possible. Well, that relates actually to the next question that has come in. It's a fascinating question. Are there any new traits or characteristics you acquired through this whole process, this, this incredible experience? And I think you're kind of getting at that now. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I, I definitely think that um, I'm a lot more kind of compassionate for what other people are going through. I think I've always had a certain sense of like care for my friends and, and really, you know, interested in, in what's going on with them. Um, but I would say that it was very different to um, even kind of see other people's compassion for me even. I think I was had a heightened sense of that to show up somewhere and, you know, obviously somebody's like, oh, how are you? And immediately you're like, oh, great, how are you? And they're like, no, how are you? You know, and that you're like, oh yeah, I forgot. Like, And so even deciding, you know, in every social situation, you're not able to go in like me and you are doing right now into some 30 minute synopsis of, what everything's going on. And so my catchphrase for a lot of it was, you know, I'm going through it, but it's okay. Or like, I'm going through it, but it'll be all right. So that was kind of like a, you know, I couldn't just walk around being like, I'm great. How are you? Um, but also really being tuned into other people like, Hey, you know, how's it going? Or like, what's going on with you? Um, and having a little bit more of that understanding, you know, if their grandparent or parent was going through treatment um, for something similar. Okay. What would you advise, say, future GVSU students or younger GVSU students who are facing their own challenges? What's your, your big advice to them to get through really horrific challenges? I think it's just definitely being able to use your resources. I think that especially a university like Grand Valley um, is very well equipped with you know, the right departments and the right people who are willing to help you. I think that Grand Valley really showcases that West Michigan, like very friendly, um, you know, faculty and, and staff. And for me, that was like almost the hardest step was to be able to walk in, you know, to my professor's office hours to, you know, the professor who had just seen me as the girl in the third row who sometimes raised her hand to be like, hey, this is what I'm going through. Am I able to continue your class? And then also working you know, with disability support to make sure that um, as a student with a chronic illness, if something were to change, that I have that support of an advisor and medical records that the school can pull at any time to you know, back it up if a professor for some reason did give me a hard time. I think it's more about the relationship of it all and just being able to really say, okay, you know, who's the person who can really guide me through that next step because it's different for everybody. And, you know, there are a lot of people who wouldn't have continued school. And like I said, I don't know 
if I had the opportunity to go back and change it, what I would do, because like I said, for so much of it, I think I was in denial and not as much coping, I think the way a lot of people would have wanted me to, but everyone has to kind of come to it on their own terms. How has going through this experience changed your perspective on leadership? I think before my perspective on leadership was much more um, individual. I think, you know, especially taking on the role of president of my sorority, I was so confident on, you know, my own abilities. I was like, oh yeah, for sure. Like I ran for this position because I know the chapter and I know my own qualities and I know that I'm going to be able to kind of move forward and lead the chapter in the direction that I want. But, you know, it's an executive board of 11 people. It's not just you running the show, especially me being absent a lot of that time. Um, it was definitely an understanding of really leaning on and working with the people around you and understanding that, you know, not everybody really signed up for that semester of what was really happening. And um, it was kind of like a rolling ball. Like we, it just kind of kept getting worse. And so that was why in the very beginning, I didn't just step down because I had this understanding, oh, it's going to be one surgery. I'm going to be gone from school for, you know, a week or two and I'll be back. And so I didn't really even have the time to make a decision about stepping down from my leadership position until that summer. And by that time I was like, you know, I, I've done half of it again and, and I want to continue it through the fall um, to really come full circle. And so I leaned on the vice president a lot. Um, she definitely took on way more than she had signed up for and did it really, really graciously. Um, but to understand that in an organization of 120 people, you know, you have to have a strong enough executive board, a strong enough leadership system where you could take one person out at any time and it would all flow seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And I think you've answered this question in a slightly different way already, but it's worth posing in such a straightforward manner. The question is, how did going through this experience of battling cancer change your sense of time and how you prioritize things? I think for sure, um, prioritizing health. And I will say that, that that was a very slow moving um, kind of train, especially um, being somebody who really did not cook before or um, eat like super, super healthy. That was kind of a, not, I would say a little bit of a fight between me, me and my mom. I think I can call it a fight um, of like going to see a nutritionist and, you know, being on the phone with my parents and them being like, okay, what'd you eat today? Like, you know, like all organic. And that's really, really hard as a college student. Um, but I think now I definitely prioritize, you know, what I'm putting into my body and what I'm eating and how I'm kind of spending my time. And I think even after college, it'll be a really good opportunity um, to just make healthier habits. I, college in general just does not really allow students to make healthy habits between the class loads and, you know, the organizations. And of course, those are things, those extracurriculars are things that we're choosing to add to our schedule. But, you know, they lead to less sleep, less time to cook and to do all those things. And being somebody in college who was notoriously very busy, very overbooked, um, I'm hoping that kind of post-grad will lead me 
of course, work, but that work-life balance for more time for health and, and wellness. And Riley, what's your advice to people who have not ever been seriously ill when they first approach you just and start a conversation? Um, what's the worst thing they can say? What's the best thing they can say? If you, you kind of know that they don't really empathize because they haven't been through a similar experience. Mm -hmm. What's your advice? Help us um, out. There's, there's a really good TED talk on this too, actually. Um, but I, for whatever reason during treatment, I really, really struggled with the phase, oh, everything happens for a reason. Or, oh, you know, this was supposed to happen. This was meant to happen. This is exactly how you were supposed to get where you are now. Um, and I 100% believe that, you know, God has a plan and there's a purpose for a lot of things. But I think that sickness and, and cancer kind of falls in that category of um, you're almost like your body fighting against you. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't even say genetics, but obviously, you know, our body on earth is completely separate. And the health side of it is, is really difficult. I think that um, cancer really isn't supposed to happen to people. I think it's something that our bodies have kind of, it's happened over time. But for me, if I could go back to who I was in the fall of 2018, given the chance, I think I probably would, you know, to skip over all of that horrible happening. Um, obviously, it, it turned out okay. I went for scans in, in February and they were clear. Um, but this is a, a lifetime thing. This is going to affect me for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to do scans and to have that fear that this could, you know, take control of my life again um, is, is real and is scary. And so I think that um, it's obviously impossible to, to go back and to say, oh, I wish it all didn't happen. Um, but I think that's a difficult conversation and one that's hard to kind of tread lightly. Well, Riley, is there anything you would like to add that we have not covered? No, I mean, I think that's everything. I think it's really just, um, for me, I found a lot of my own identity was tied to energy and tied to the amount of energy I had. And so just being able to really reflect with anybody, I think everyone could say that their identity is, is tied to um, a lot of different things. And just to really look at your life and say, okay, am I spending my time, you know, in ways that are really meaningful and are really using my energy or adding energy to my life in a positive way? Or am I just busy? Am I just managing my time and adding things into my day, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. because I feel like I have to or because I was told that I had to? Very good. Well, thank you, Riley, for sharing your story and inspiring our listeners. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And that concludes this edition of Lunch and Learn. Join us at the same time next Tuesday when my guest will be Dr. Gregory Dykehouse, an inspirational teacher at Black River Public School in Holland, Michigan. Dr. Dykehouse will tell us how his students are faring in the new normal of stay home, stay safe. And he'll share with us some of the most exciting lessons he has gleaned from Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice. Thanks for watching and stay well.
Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu slash hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney. Thank you.